Welcome back, guys. It's been a while, I know. Uh, work has been crazy, uh, just nonstop. I'm exhausted from it. Um, plus, my last episode was really emotionally draining, um, so I needed to step away for a little while, you know, get back in a good headspace again. Uh, so I'm heading to Ireland in a couple of weeks for my little nephew's first birthday and his christening. I'm so excited. Uh, it's only going to be for a little bit less than a week, so it's a very short visit, but I'm excited to catch up with everyone. As I said, work has been crazy, so I've been so boring, uh, so I'm definitely going to make up for it while I'm there. Uh, TV-wise, I've been watching... Love Island UK which has finally gotten good for the last week or so it was so boring the first few weeks uh but so worth it for the recent drama I'm so annoyed along with everybody else with Liam's behavior in Casa Amor oh my god Millie is such a catch she is just fabulous in every sense of the word does not deserve that behavior um, while Liam is at fault 100%, I have to say I do not trust that Lily girl at all. I think that despite what she says, she was in no way looking out for another girl. I think she wanted a little bit of revenge on Liam because she is merely pissed that she did not get into the main villa. And she thought she had a hot ticket straight there. Um, I think she did nothing more than torture Millie further by meeting her with that little get-together that they had. And a tiny part of me thinks that she quite enjoyed it because now she has more airtime, she has more attention. I just did not like her behaviour at all. I've been catching up with Handmaid's Tale. I haven't watched this since season one. It's brilliant, but it is just draining to watch it. I feel like it's one of those, one of the only shows out there that I actually prefer to watch it week to week instead of binging it. Um, it's just like too much sometimes and you need a little kind of, <sighs> okay, let me just throw something like funny on or something like that, you know? Um, the last two nights I binge watched uh the first like seven eight episodes of america's got talent i love that show i just find it so different to other shows like it's all usually like singing shows dancing shows but i love the variety of it and i love the judges i think severe vergara was a great addition last year the only thing i dislike about it is that i think there shouldn't be any singing acts allowed on it there's more than enough singing talent shows I just feel like too many singers on it also get the golden buzzer I just find it a little bit unfair um so anyway back to this week's episode so today I'm going to talk about the recovery process um it takes a long time it's got good days got bad days you never quite recover fully um you are a victim trying to figure out how to become a survivor but it does gradually get a whole lot easier and I can finally say after almost six years that I feel truly happy again. It's a relief but also terrifying to realize that what you're going through 
is abuse. I thought I was the master of disguise, but I discovered that I couldn't mask it from everyone. So many people told me afterwards that they knew something was wrong. They said my voice was different whenever I spoke about him. I never seemed happy. It turns out I'd only been hiding the abuse for myself. I remember getting off the train that day after going to the family courthouse for the first time to file my protection order and my best friend in Ireland called me and she kept saying over and over to me, it's over Amanda, it's finally over and sounding like really excited and I remember feeling really angry and frustrated and just wanting to tell her to just shut up like it's not over it wasn't over not for me and this made me really confused because I was like shouldn't I be happy like why is she happy and I'm not happy but I just didn't feel it I felt completely numb it was mostly the people who I barely knew who helped me the most through my recovery in the very early days um the random co-workers who I hung out with and had a laugh with every day at work the guy in my bodega who mentioned he hadn't seen me with my boyfriend for a while and when I said we broke up he said I was better off without him and I was too good for him anyway Uh, my bosses at work who checked in on me when I had to tell them that he might show up to my job you try to take in all of the love and support but underneath you are so deeply scarred that you just feel broken and ashamed and kind of like an idiot Exactly a week after I left him was my 30th birthday. I had planned to have dinner with some of my co-workers and drinks afterwards. I had met a lovely Australian girl some months beforehand through an old school friend who was visiting New York for a week. She had just moved to the city and we just clicked right away. You know when you just meet someone and you just like, they're just your kind of person. Um, so I messaged her to see if she wanted to come thinking that she wouldn't because we barely knew each other but she said yes and I still kind of didn't really think that she would um not only did she show up she arrived at the restaurant before anybody else she brought a friend with her who was great and we ended up staying out all night together even when my co-workers left and she wouldn't let me pay for any drinks all night My actual birthday was the next day and at midnight we were in this tiny bar. I still don't know where in the city we were. I was sitting on a bar stool and she made the whole bar sing happy birthday to me. And normally I despise being sung happy birthday to. But I can honestly say that after the horrific week that I'd had, it was just really special. She took a picture of me while it was happening and it remains to this day my favourite picture of myself. I look so happy in it and every time I look at it now I can still feel the happiness that I felt in that moment. The next day on my actual birthday my best friend picked me up as we had dinner plans. She handed me a bunch of flowers, the first and only flowers that I've ever received from anyone and she told me to open my birthday card right away. So not only had she made dinner plans in the city, but she had also bought us tickets to a Broadway show. It was so sweet and we had the best night. And I just remember that weekend being over and just thinking, you know what, maybe I'll be okay. But it wasn't always okay. Um, I had so many different side effects from what I'd been through, some of which I still suffer from today. So here are just a few. Uh, PTSD, 
anxiety, stress. Large amounts of stress chemicals have shown to damage brain tissue. The victims become more confused and deranged until a total breakdown can occur. Headaches, illness, fear, paranoia, the urge to cry out of nowhere. My OCD symptoms became worse. Uh, depression, blaming myself for putting up with the abuse and shame for allowing it to happen. This wasn't helped by people in my life who would say things like, I would never let a man speak to me like that, etc., etc. Uh, I had nightmares that I was back in the apartment with him. Every time I felt any bit of happiness and realized that I was happy, I would immediately think this is too good to be true. And any minute I'm going to wake up and be back with him. My mood was constantly up and down. My best friend from Ireland came to visit only two months after I left him. And on her last night, as we were having dinner and talking about a group of people that we used to know years before, I said something like, oh, I don't want to talk about them anymore. They aren't part of our lives anymore. And she completely snapped at me. She said I had ruined her vacation because my mood was constantly up and down and I kept snapping at her for no reason. Her boyfriend was with us and he left the table so we could talk. I just remember being shocked and really hurt. I just put my head down and I didn't speak and I was silently crying. I just couldn't really believe that she had said that to me. Um... She said, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. So clearly it was something that had been bothering her all week. I tried to explain that I was just having a hard time, but it was like I couldn't even get the words out. I even apologized to her, but she still didn't understand why I was still upset when I was free now. She is the same person who said a few days after I left him that... She deserved a holiday from all of the stressful phone calls that I made to her before I left. I have more to say about her, but I will explain further later in the episode. Uh, I had confusion, hopelessness, difficulty concentrating. I was constantly tense, uh, lonely. My whole mood was negative instead of positive. Even at work, I became close to a co-worker who was kind of known to be rude to customers, constantly gossiping, full of drama. I had so much anger and frustration in me that speaking negatively with her every day seemed to help me get it, get it all out. It was very, very unlike me. Um, I had sleep paralysis. The first time it happened was a few nights after I left. I just woke up frozen in place and feeling like someone was sitting on my chest and that something bad was about to happen another night I remember clearly being awake but also feeling like I was dreaming uh, my bed faced the door which faced the front door I felt a strong breeze like the front door and my bedroom door was open and it was like I just knew my abuser was in the house and he was there to take me back home I remember being completely frozen in fear I don't know how long it lasted but it felt like a really long time so there's a lot of different um, feelings that you have after you leave and they continue for a really long time and some of them still continue now I had no money at the time. He had taken everything from me. 
one day in desperation to make rent that month I packed up a large tote bag full of belongings a lot of them items that I did not want to give away um I had an iPad there and just other random things um I headed to the city to this store that bought used items I remember it was St. Patrick's Day and everyone in my neighborhood was dressed up and headed to the parade and I just remember walking to the train and feeling so broken so sad so ashamed so desperate I got enough money to make my rent but it was a very small amount considering what I had actually given away um it's one of those things that still makes me really sad to think of um to this day but you know I did what I had to do to get by I had to change my phone network and it was so hard to do so because my credit score was so bad after him racking up so much credit in my name and not paying it back. I went to every single phone company until I finally found one who didn't refuse me. Um, I'm 35 now and I'm still nowhere near where I'd like to be financially but I am proud to have gotten this far by myself and you know even though it can be scary it is still far better than the situation that I was in. I had to apply to get my visa renewal without his name attached to it as he had sponsored my original visa. Um, So a wonderful organization called Her Justice helped me out. They took care of everything all I had to do was show up every couple of weeks tell them my whole story from the day we met until the last contact that I had with him I thought it would be hard to do this but honestly it felt like a therapy session every time the two lawyers that I had were so understanding and sympathetic they made it so easy I found actually that it was a lot harder to talk about the early happy days than it was the actual abuse itself I felt disgust and embarrassment at like having ever felt that way about him so to get his name removed I basically had to prove why I couldn't still be with him which meant proving as best that I could that he was abusive I told my story I went back over all the videos I'd taken all the texts every photo of us together every card and invitation that we both received things like that it was a lot of work I will say as a recommendation if you ever find yourself in this situation save everything every bit of proof that you had that you were together proof that you have of abuse anything save it somewhere get a hard drive and hide it somewhere whatever you have to do take pictures screenshots of everything um you know even though I had broken all contact with him I had still keeping keeping keep keeping kept even (laughs) I can't speak um I had kept our line of communication open through Facebook Messenger um, just because I didn't really use Facebook a lot so I knew there wasn't really any information he could get um, from my account I pretty much had blocked everything private anyway and just kept the Messenger part open just because you know I never messaged him back but I wanted to like have some kind of because I knew he was going to keep texting me and I wanted to have proof that like this was still going on that he was still harassing me and also I was then able to go back um, because our original form of communication we were first getting together was through Facebook so a lot of that was you know me going back over the um 
old messages between us so that went a long way to like prove how we had gotten together and then obviously the actual abusive messages were there too so I was able to take screenshots and send that in as part of my application so I would just say keep proof of everything that you can everything Um, So my lawyer sent my first round of the application off and she told me that they they were then going to put together some backup information as it was possible that immigration may ask for further proof and, you know, she wanted to be prepared for that. So part of that was asking friends or family who knew about the abuse to write affidavits to back up my story. So I didn't really, um, I hadn't told really anyone um about the abuse as it was happening it was more so after so I asked my two friends in Ireland who I had started to tell about the abuse a few months before I left um the first one was my best friend who I spoke about earlier and the second was another close friend who also um had happened to be in an abusive relationship herself so both of them said they would do no problem They were in touch via email with my lawyer and she had them write up the affidavits, but she said we wouldn't need to have them notarized unless they actually came back and asked for more information, which we knew would take a while. So a whole year went by and my lawyer contacted me to say that immigration had been in touch. Um, They'd gone through my application and said that they wanted more proof of the abuse. So I contacted the two girls Um, from here on I'm going to call them friend one who was my best friend and friend two who was the friend who had also been in the abusive relationship so I got no response from friend number two Uh, friend number one responded the next morning um, with a very interesting text Um, she said I'm sorry, but I won't be able to sign it. I spent a long time on it, writing it from my point of view, and it's been returned twice and my words changed. I explained I wasn't comfortable using the terms physical abuse and battery, especially with it being a legal document. I hope you understand where I'm coming from. Even as I say this my whole body is shaking like I can even tell that my voice sounds different because I'm still not over it after all these years this was about I guess five years ago now four years ago five years ago um this was my best friend and here she was gaslighting me by denying that my abuse had been physical I already had a hard time myself coming to terms with the abuse so to hear someone I considered my closest friend denying it too was just so so hurtful and still is now the term battery is a blanket term that is used on the actual application itself it wasn't a term that my lawyer was using to exaggerate and her words being changed wasn't fully accurate even my own affidavit had been changed slightly when my lawyer rewrote it this is because she knows how these statements need to be written and she knows how to sum them up in a way that is clear and precise to immigration like they don't want a long rambling story they want the incidents and the important points written clearly so they can understand and see the full story without it being a full novel of my life 
So I responded and told her as such and I explained how hurtful that message had been, that she was denying my abuse and that I hope she never had to go through something like this, that my whole life was in this country and this could potentially end my time here. She responded by saying that I had some audacity to talk to her with that attitude after everything she had done for me, that she was shocked that I would ask anything more of her and that the outcome of my application doesn't depend on a friend in Ireland, that I was putting the blame on her and she was fuming. So I never responded to her again and I can honestly say that even though we were friends for almost 20 years, I didn't even miss her or think about her much really after that only unless someone happened to mention her name when I look back now I realize that I had brushed aside all of the times over the years where she had upset me and treated me unfairly so while I was shocked and hurt I wasn't actually that surprised that it had happened and I kind of believe it was a long time coming So as for friend number two, I still hadn't heard from her and I then assumed that friend one had gotten to her, gotten in her ear, told her not to do it either. Eventually she did get back to me, but the phone call honestly wasn't great. Um, She asked me a bunch of questions about whether it was actually physical or not. And I was so taken aback, especially considering that she herself had been abused and I had never once questioned her abuse. Regardless of that, she did say that she would do it. Um, A couple of days later, I got this email from my lawyer. Friend two seems really concerned that the name of the application is the battered spouse waiver. I explained that this is a blanket term, but the application doesn't require there to be criminal battery. The standard is extreme cruelty, which can be demonstrated through verbal, emotional, financial or physical abuse all of which I suffered. I also explained that these applications are confidential. No one is ever allowed to know that it was filed. Immigration has no interest in the person writing the affidavit and it has no effect on their future travel to the US. I'm sorry about your other friend. She hasn't returned any of my emails. So from this email, it is clear to me that they were both questioning the abuse and were more concerned about their future travel to the US than they were about their old friend who had never done anything bad to them. I never spoke to those girls again and honestly it's been no loss. It was very hurtful of course. It's hard enough to come to terms with the fact that you were abused yourself so to have the people in your life who you chose to open up to and be vulnerable with question you is just awful. And I got the impression too that my lawyer was kind of holding back a little bit on what those girls had actually said to her um, because when I met her after that she just like I could see herself that she was angry for me and she was like I just can't believe it and I you know told her look I'm they're not going to be in my life anymore and she was like well yeah I can completely understand that. Um, So I've already spoken last episode about how my abuser continued to harass me for over a year and a half after I left. But one night I ended up in the same space as him. This is about eight months later. I was on a date with a great guy who I'm actually still friends with today. We met on Tinder. At this time, I was honestly living my best life. I was going on about three dates a week. I just was in that mode of like, I wanted to just be young and carefree for a while. 
but I wasn't completely reckless or anything I was actually very sensible and I took care of myself and I was very smart um that's one thing that I'm glad that this kind of happened in my 30s as opposed to like if I'd been in my 20s where I think I actually probably would have been a little more reckless um so anyway we were sitting at this bar it's a really small fairly quiet bar um there was a few people sitting at the bar with us um there were some guys playing pool and some just like sitting on the chairs around uh, we were having a great night great conversation um this guy is like very 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 attractive like one of those people that you know when even if you don't find someone attractive but like you could just look at someone and think that person is attractive like that attractive (laughs) so next thing my abuser walks in the door and stands right next to my date at the bar I can clearly see he's drunk he hasn't noticed that it's me yet he says hi to the barman he says um hi to the people sitting on the other side of him and then he says hi to us and then he double takes and he clearly notices that it is me his face turned sheet white and he quickly made his way to the other side of the bar um I told my date who it was I had kind of filled him in on the gist of the story earlier in the night he asked if I was okay I said I was I thought I was okay but I went to the restroom and I just remember I started completely shaking I'd been so happy all evening and now I suddenly felt like you know it serves you right for being happy and like now you have to go home to your old life like this is the you know back to reality kind of moment you know serves you right for thinking you were happy so I pulled myself together and I walked back out had my head held high I was like you know what I don't care um so I noticed he was across the bar talking to random people probably annoying strangers as he usually did when he was drunk um I did ask if I was okay and if I had seen his message but I had left my phone and my jacket at the bar um so he had text to ask if I wanted to go somewhere else which was I thought very sweet of him but I was adamant that we stayed we had another drink and then we decided to go get some food thankfully it didn't ruin the night but it was a shock to say the least although I think that my ex was probably even more shocked than I was um to see me with a, a guy particularly one as attractive so the story never really ends for survivors leaving doesn't mean that the danger is over i still look over my shoulder every day every room i enter every bar store restaurant every street i walk down i firstly do a quick scan to make sure he's not there um i don't even notice that i'm doing it i know that i'm doing it but it's like i don't even know why but it's just automatic so many times I think I see him on the street and I'll panic thinking okay what am I going to do if he sees me and then I'll get closer and I realize it's not him before I walk into my house every day I check over my shoulder to see that he's not there um because I don't want him to know where I live um I'm careful with the information that I put online or that I give to people uh when I used to rent the second bedroom in my apartment I would pray that whoever viewed the room wouldn't recognize me or you know if someone was coming to view the room that they wouldn't bring him with them or connect him to me in some way um you know there's a lot of photographs of me in the apartment um so things like that you know 
Um, it's like something that's constantly there at the back of my mind. Also, abusers' anger can continue for years. They want revenge for you leaving them. Even this podcast can put me at risk. The danger of putting myself out there and exposing him because I know so many of you listening know exactly the person that I've been talking about for these last few episodes. But for me, it is worth it. So here's some reasons why I wanted to share my story. Firstly, not enough people talk about domestic abuse and believe me, it is a lot more common than you might think. I can guarantee you that you know quite a few people who are in abusive relationships currently or who have been in one at one point. It helps me as every time I tell my story, I feel a sense of relief. By sharing in the past, I've had people I know reach out and say that they've gone through a similar experience or that it made them realize that they were in an abusive situation. I've even had complete strangers reaching out to me. When victims are isolated from family and friends, they have no one to tell them that what they're going through isn't right. And therefore, I want to be that voice for them. I want people to be able to spot the signs, whether they are the victim or suspect someone is. I believe it's important to have this information. I want to show people that there is no exact depiction of what a victim looks like or what an abuser looks like. It can be anyone. I want to change the way people think of abuse. Physical abuse isn't worse than emotional abuse. They are both the same and every bit as hurtful and traumatizing. Abuse is abuse. I may not have a very large audience, but even the people who hear this may just be the people who need this information. Finally, I want people to know that it is not the victim's fault. I am so over victim blaming, aren't you? I am lucky that I never have to have contact with my abuser again. A lot of women still share custody of their kids with their abusers. We continue to put men in positions of power. We continuously see perpetrators get away with abuse and even brag about it. Accountability is so important. Men are told to be manly, to not show emotion, to solve conflict with physical violence. I believe a lot of cases aren't dealt with correctly because of a lack of communication and share of information between departments such as the cops and the courts. I don't believe abusers are just sick. I believe they make a choice. They're calculating. I would continually see my abuser treat strangers, friends, family with the utmost respect, but then treat me like a piece of garbage. He was choosing to treat me differently. Even though it's been years now, I will never, ever allow myself to be in a room with him. Why are women still treated differently to men? A lot of animal cruelty laws predate cruelty towards women laws. I want to read some facts about different laws pertaining to domestic violence. Um, I got these again from No Visible Bruises. I will link in the bio as usual. We see these messages when our politicians wrangle over reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act and then fund it so sparingly it's practically a hiccup in the federal budget. The Violence Against Women Act has an entire budget of just under 489 million at present. Jeff Bezos could fund the current budget for 300 years and still have millions upon which to carve out a meager subsistence. But we give victims the message to stay in other ways too. 
When our court system puts them on the defensive, ask them to face a person who may have tried to kill them. A person they know only too well may kill them for real next time. We see it in court rulings that give violent perpetrators a mere slap on the wrist, a fine maybe, a few days in jail after a brutal assault. We get the message when law enforcement treats domestic violence as a nuisance, a domestic dispute rather than the criminal act that it is. I have to believe if the tables were turned, if women were beating and killing men in such vast numbers, 50 women a month in the United States are killed by their intimate partners using guns alone. The problem would be the front page of every newspaper in this country. Vast pools of funding would surface for researchers to figure out what's wrong with women today. And after all of this, we have the audacity to ask why victims stay. There are still more than a dozen countries where violence against one's spouse or family member is perfectly legal, which is to say that no specific laws against domestic violence have ever been written. These include Egypt, Haiti, Latvia, Uzbekistan and the Congo, among others. And then there's Russia, which in 2017 decriminalised any domestic violence that doesn't result in bodily injury. There's also, of course, the United States, whose first appointed attorney general under the Trump administration believed domestic abuse was not grounds for asylum and that such an alien merely suffered the fate of misfortune. In other words, these days, if you have the good luck to be terrorised outside your home by your own government's forces, you can claim asylum. But if that terror exists behind closed doors, well, that kind of bad luck means you're on your own. It wasn't until 1984 that Congress finally passed a law that would help women and children victims of abuse. It was called the Family Violence Prevention and Services Act, and it helped fund shelters and other resources for victims. Stalking wasn't identified as a crime until the early 1990s, and still today is often not seen for the threat it truly is. Despite three quarters of women killed in America having been stalked beforehand by the same partners or ex-partners, nearly 90% of domestic violence homicide victims were both stalked and beaten in the year prior to their deaths. A national hotline for victims of domestic violence was not established in this country until 1996. The women's movement in the 1970s and 80s had brought battered women to the attention of a nation just beginning to accept the idea of equality. So basically, once again, us women had to do it ourselves. The focus in those years was on shelters, building them, funding them, getting abused women away from perpetrators. But in the 1990s, that began to change. Across the country, advocates, attorneys, police officers, judges, all told me that two primary events caused this. The first was the O.J. Simpson trial. For many, Nicole Brown Simpson became the face of a new kind of victim. She was beautiful, wealthy, famous. If it could happen to her, it could happen to anyone. O.J.'s history of violence with her had been known to law enforcement. He'd been arrested, then bailed out, then sentenced to telephone counselling by a California judge, after which the case was dropped. Nicole's 911 tapes allowed listeners into a rare scene, a woman under siege by a man who claimed to love her. The threats, the coercion, the terror, it was all right there. Her murder hurled into the forefront a conversation that advocates have been having for years, that it could happen anywhere to anyone. Victims suddenly began to access resources in unprecedented numbers. Calls to domestic violence hotlines, shelters and police skyrocketed in the wake of the trial. 
Simpson's case also became a rallying cry for victims of colour who asked rightfully why it took a rich, white, beautiful woman to get the story of domestic violence homicide out in the public's view. After all, women of colour experience private violence at the same or even higher levels as white women, except they bore the added weight of racial inequality. The second major event that changed how we treat domestic violence was the Violence Against Women's Act. It put intimate partner violence before lawmakers who had until then seen it as a private family matter, a problem for women rather than the criminal justice system. It had first been introduced to Congress by then-Senator Joseph Biden in 1990, but it wasn't until the fall of 1994 that the bill passed, just weeks after the OJ trial wrapped up. Finally, for the first time ever, cities and towns all across the country could get federal funding to address domestic violence in their communities. These funds allowed for targeted trainings of first responders, the creation of advocacy positions, shelters, transitional housing, batterer intervention classes and legal training. The funds meant victims no longer had to pay for their own rape kits, and if an abused partner was evicted because of events related to her abuse, she could now receive compensation and assistance. Victims with disabilities could find support, as could those in need of legal aid. At the time, then-Senator Biden told the Associated Press, Domestic violence is a hate crime. My objective is to give the woman every opportunity under the law to seek redress, not only criminally, but civilly. I want to raise the consciousness of this country that women's civil rights, their right to be left alone, is in jeopardy. The Violence Against Women's Act requires reauthorization every five years. The 2013 reauthorization was held up because Republicans didn't want the bill to include same-sex partners, Native Americans living on reservations, or undocumented immigrants who were battered and trying to apply for temporary visas. After heated debates in both the House and the Senate, the reauthorization finally passed. Just this last week, President Biden signed the VOCA Fix Act into law. This bill adds a new source of revenue for the Crime Victims Fund and makes changes to formula grants supported by the funds. Recovery is a process. There is no time frame. One day you are just taking a walk, sitting in the park, making dinner, reading, hanging out with friends, and you just stop and realize that you're okay. You made it out. So that is my story. I hope you got something from it. I hope it made you think. I hope it helped you. Um, The podcast will continue though. My story is definitely not over. And unfortunately, there are also many other stories to be told. And I'm going to tell you these stories. So in the next few episodes, I want to talk about stories of other women if you yourself would like your story to be told, please reach out to me on Instagram at IPV on me or at Mangogs on Instagram, Twitter. You can tell it through me or if you're feeling brave, then I would love to have you on here. Maybe you're a friend or family of someone who's experienced abuse. I want to hear your stories, but only if you're comfortable telling me. So that is all for this week thank you so much for all of your kind messages thank you so much for your patience while i got around to recording this um so till next time take care of yourselves